Live, what is up everybody? And welcome to live stream number 112 of the Data on Kubernetes community. The 111 live streams that we've done before this got us prepared for today, super stoked. This one has actually been months in the making when I got to know Jonathan for the first time several months ago. We've had some different things going on, finally got back together uh, making this happen. Before we got started, as usual, folks, check us out on Twitter, check us out on LinkedIn, subscribe to our YouTube channel, jump in on Slack, get in on the action. We have plenty of things going on. We've got live streams all the way through the end of this month, tons of stuff going on in February, got live streams planned all the way through uh, March and now into April. Has some new things coming up as well. You can expect to hear about localized meetups, starting out virtual, respecting COVID limitations, but hopefully in the future, moving to local in-person meetups. So you can expect more news about that. And speaking of news, we've got our third co-located event in KubeCon, right? Our third KubeCon um, that's going to be coming up on May 16th, right? But I'll leave the uh, CFP for you here. Uh, if you want to give a, if you want to give a talk, just remember we're not looking for vendor pitches. We are really not looking for vendor pitches, and we are certainly not looking for pitches from vendors. Um, that being said, the instructions are very clear on the sessionized link. You can see all the stuff that you need to know about what kind of talks we're looking for in terms of format, content. You can also propose panels, some very clear guidelines about that. Now, we've had a couple of talks about out of the 111 previous live streams we've had, we've had a couple of talks that have focused on the, the nature of Postgres. The super loved, well-known, battle-tested database got tons of fans all over the world, and Jonathan happens to be one of them. Jonathan, welcome to the Data on Kubernetes community. Great to Thank have you here with us. Could you just give us a little bit about your experience, how you got started with Postgres, and how you got started with Kubernetes? Wow, that's a uh, that's a uh, that's a lot of questions. So first, you know, as a recovering uh, event organizer, I must say that uh, seeing you have everything booked out months in advance, you know, including talks, is incredible, uh, and definitely a uh, major kudos to that. Like that's, uh, that's something I certainly admire. Uh, and I'm not just saying that just because uh, you let me uh, speak here. Um, <laughs> but so I put start on Postgres is actually a uh, you know we could probably spend an hour on that, um, but. I started as an application developer. This was back when I was hacking in high school, trying to like build websites, which was, uh, you know, I, I don't like to admit how long high school was ago, you know, despite youthful appearance, but um, it, you know, I, I started from that. And I started just building websites on it. And like, you know, I fell in love with the features, you know, instead of just trying to like, you know, do things through an ORM, I was like, let me dive into uh, my database layer, like write, you know, raw SQL queries. So use like Postgres full support for data types and indexes. Um, and, you know, you know, what so happened is that, you know, Postgres ended up becoming very popular you know, for, for a lot of different reasons. And you, know, you were able to be a you know, full time living off of either just managing Postgres databases or being, you know, being part of a vendor company. And that's ultimately what got me into Kubernetes is uh, I joined Crunchy Data and Crunchy Data had already been running Postgres on Kubernetes for several years. And, you know, this was, you know, over four years ago when I joined. And I was like, this is cool. Let me, you know, dive more into this, you know, containers world. You know, this seems like they're going to be kind of important and everyone's going to be using them in a few years. And uh, fast forward to now, you know, we're having having this conversation. And I think, you know, and I don't know if this is a good segue too much in today, but what I've been looking at was not so much about, you know, running a database in containers. It was, how do I run Postgres in a production environment on Kubernetes? Um, and this just comes from having been the accidental system administrator DBA. You know, I'm an application developer at heart but I always would find myself having to, you know, manage the database at the end of the day. So how can we make it easy to do that, you know, in a, in a production environment? Very, very good. Well, that's a, that's a, that's a nice way to get started out. Um, yeah. That being said, folks, as usual, we want this to be as interactive as possible. If you've got questions, leave them in the YouTube chat. That being said, Jonathan, if you want to share your screen, jump into your presentation, go for it. 
I do. Uh, I've I accidentally did not mute notifications. Before. Oh, wait, hang on. Let me just mute notifications. That's okay. Before Always start. important. There we go. Because <laughs> yes. they will jump out. Yes. They will. All right. So we are going to share my entire window. Um, and I'm going to bring up my slides. And I will forewarn you, this is not a this is not a product pitch. This is not a vendor pitch. Some things might read like that, but actually, what we're talking about is all open source. And we're going to talk. And really, like the pith of this is going to be a demo. Um, so, with that, would you like me to just take it away and dive into it, or any, anything else uh, you'd like to say before we begin? No, no, no. It's all you. Take it away. Cool. All righty. So, briefly about myself. I don't like talking about myself too much, but um, as uh, Bart alluded to, I've been around Postgres for many years. I've actually been active in the Postgres community for well over a decade. Started out on the event organizing side, uh, trying to, you know, uh, you know encourage people to use Postgres by planning local user groups, conferences, et cetera. Um, and, you know, graduated into some more of uh, the governance type aspects of the project. Um, you know, beyond that, I've been in the startup world for a very long time uh, and I joined Crunchy Data because I just wanted to work on Postgres full time. Brief, uh, brief plug about Crunchy, if that's okay. Uh, all we do is open source Postgres. Uh, we love contributing to open source projects, including the Postgres upstream. Uh, we have a certified open source Postgres distribution. Uh, we do we do stuff with Postgres on Kubernetes, as uh, this talk will convey today. And uh, we also have our own uh, fully managed cloud service called Crunchy Bridge. So now that we have the pleasantries out of the way, let's dive into it. So, as I mentioned at the top, you know my you know my thesis when coming to Kubernetes is not so much like can I get something up and running on Kubernetes. I think in many ways that's a well solved problem, but even still like. I think in some ways it's well solved, some ways it isn't. You know, Kubernetes continues to evolve very rapidly in a lot of different ways. I mean, on the Postgres side, we've been very excited about the Kube 122 release, uh, you know, for this, you know, for you know, the support for C group version two, for being able to support swap, which is uh, you know, very important for running a Postgres database you know, within uh, within that environment. Um, but you know, it also means that you know, as Kubernetes evolves, we need to make sure we can tailor to post you know Postgres to run you know within the production environment. And the reason production is so important to us is that, and really to me, you know, personally, is that that's ultimately where my data is going to live. Like I can do all sorts of crazy things in my development environment and test things out, but if I can't get it to run in production, then you know, what's the point? You know, it suddenly is you know just an experiment. Um, I've seen this with particular Postgres features. I have a talk just how to run, you know, uh, use a feature called the foreign data wrapper, and you know how easy it was to get it working in a, a dev, dev environment. I brought it to production. I was like, oh, there's all these like different security concerns and other things I need to, to, to work on. So this is why, you know, a lot of, you know, what the focus on, you know, from the product and engineering side has been, what can we do to not only make it possible to run Postgres in production on Kubernetes, but make it easy. You don't want to have to worry about managing a database. You want to worry about building your application. Like that has always been my mindset as the app developer is like, just give me the connection to the database and then, you know, I'll do all the rest. So this is where you know country Postgres through Kubernetes comes from, and you know, read you know read this as you know the Postgres operator Pigo, you know for short, and you know for the rest of the time I'm going to refer to it as Pigo. Pigo has been open source for seven or eight years. I I've lost track now. It's been a long time, and like really has been you know battle tested in production environments, and we've you know continued to evolve it through the years. And you know diving into this and. What I'll say is we're gonna dive a little bit into like the general, you know, the general user experience, you know, the general features, and then we're just gonna demo because that's why we're here. Like we're gonna actually look at, you know, running an application with, you know, typical production environments. 
So what's important when you're trying to deploy anything in Kubernetes? I mean, first you need to be decorative. Like this is the this is why I love Kubernetes is that I'm just going to define what I want to deploy, like what my topology looks like, and then boom, like it should just appear. You know, when I'm deploying a, a deployment, you know, I want you know three replicas of you know of my application. I want them to be distributed across you know you know this pod you know this pod topology, and you know maybe add some tolerations that you want to set for them, like. I don't necessarily care like how Kubernetes does it. I just trust Kubernetes to do that. We want the same experience for our databases, even you know whether it's Postgres or not. So this was like one of the first big design decisions of Pigo was that let's make it fully declarative. You know, it, you know everything like I want high availability. I want my backup stored somewhere. I want monitoring turned on. Let's make it so you just say I want those features, and then the operator takes care of the rest. I can set and forget. Um, GitOps, you know, this is, you know, another, you know, big advantage of running things in Kubernetes is that you're able to, you know, successfully version your manifest, be able to move forward and back in time. And with databases, it can be a little bit trickier, you know, particularly if you're doing, you know, you know, destructive things like a point in time recovery, but we can, you know, we can get as close to GitOps as possible you know, and with a lot of, you know, the other uh, operations involved. So, you know, Pico, you know, just the long story short is it works with all the tools. Um, the last three points are really, you know, what we're going to focus on today. I mean, I guess, you know, the first two as well, since I, I will be making changes to the manifest, you know, live in real time, but, you know, make it easy to get started. Um, let's get a production database up and running. That's pretty, that's a pretty powerful statement. But when I'm in production, I have concerns as well. I, I don't want things to go down. Um, I want to make sure that, uh, you know, if I need to, you know, update, you know, update my Postgres version from 14.1 to 14.2, that you know, there's minimal or no downtime. You know, let's learn from Kubernetes. Let's apply something like a rolling update, and you know, let's make sure that you know we feel comfortable running my applications in it. So I'm gonna go over a few architectural concepts that are important. Um, I would say you know, they're certainly important for Pico, um, but you know, they're also important. I would say for running you know anything where you're backed by a key stateful service. And the first is this notion of being declarative. You know, I feel, you know, I feel in some ways this is redundant talking about it to the Kubernetes community, but, you know, I think I, I do like to bring this up because I think declarative is important. This is why Kubernetes is so popular is that I build out my YAML manifest. I say like, I want my HA, I want my DR, I want my monitoring. I, you know, I put it up to my API or my custom resource and Pigo just takes care of it or an operator takes care of it or, you know, a controller in Kubernetes takes care of it and deploys it as you want. Now, Looking at this diagram here, ho hopefully it's legible. Uh, it's certainly legible on my big screen, but I think for me, the important bit of this is, you know, not just that we have this topology, but how do I connect my application to it? And we're gonna see that we're gonna leverage Kube secrets to basically say, all your connection connections are in there. You don't even need to look inside them at all. Um, there, you know, you know, you just, you know, you know, plop them in and everything just works with your application. So we're up and running. That's great, but now we run, get into like day one and day two where things happen, things go wrong. Uh, one of my favorite support tickets I ever received, I, I received, you know, in, with an earlier version of Pigo was, hey, uh, you know, we accidentally deleted our connection pooler, but it never respawned. Well, that's pretty bad, right? Um, you know, because, you know, we need that to come back up. You know, if you delete a deployment or delete a service, they don't automatically come back up. That's where an operator helps. And this is a great thing about the operator pattern in general is that it can detect those changes and like automatically heal them. But that's one, that's only one side of the equation. Um, you know, an operator can certainly help maintain um, the state of how you want your Kubernetes objects deployed. 
But then there's availability within your stateful services themselves, including Postgres. You know, you want to make sure there's no single point of failure, and we'll see. You know, we'll see. You know how uh, Pigo handles that. Um, you know, some key aspects are you know high availability uses uh, you know distributed consensus. Uh, actually, we leverage the Kubernetes APIs for that. Uh, disaster recovery. Um, you know, you know backups can you know run independently of the operator. You know, same with monitor. So updating. Um, there's many reasons why you might want to update. Uh, you know, the first reason is, uh, you know, there's, you know, CVs are coming out all the time. Your base image, you know, needs some updating. Uh, you need to, you know, you need to update, uh, you know, the, your Postgres image or your backup image or whatever it may be. Or you might need to resize your Postgres cluster. You need to add more memory. You need to add more, uh, you know, CPU resources. I mean, all those are destructive operations. So you want to make sure that updating has, uh, you know, minimal impact on your cluster. And then, and then, you know, being able to do continuous delivery, um, you know, ensuring that, you know, even though I'm talking about production grade, that you're able to build the cluster up in your, you know, various environments. And, you know, having, you know, the declarative workflow certainly helps with that. Um, you know, just one point on here is, you know, being able to, you know, infrastructure agnostic, I think you get this inherently with Kubernetes, but, you know, being able to store, you know, something like your backups in multiple locations. Um, something I did even before I came to the Kubernetes world was that I would keep, you know, I'd have Postgres cluster, you know, my, my main Postgres cluster in the main data center, another one in a different data center, I'd store my backups in multiple places because, you know, you know data is, you know, generally, you know, the critical piece of your application that if something bad happens to it and you get into an unrecoverable state, then, um, you know, that you certainly have challenges. So we're almost to the demo. Um, again, just to highlight features you should think about when you're in a production environment and how to, you know, and how to look at it. Um, high availability. Um, you know, I think there's a lot of focus on this, you know, particularly in Kubernetes is that you want to make sure that you're always available. But you also want to make sure to do it in a way, you know, where you're not, you know, necessarily sacrificing, um, you know, things around, uh, you know, you know, you know, well, you, you want to sacrifice things around data integrity. And this is where I think disaster recovery is really important, uh, making sure you have backups, making sure that you're able to restore quickly from your backups and, you know, being able to put them flexibly anywhere. And then monitoring, because, you know, with monitoring, you know, you're able to anticipate problems before they occur, you know, such as, you know, running out of disk or, you know, a runaway query. Other things that you know, an operator can certainly help with, you know, not just Pico is, you know, you know, being able to provide security out of the box, running with unprivileged containers, enabling TLS by default. Um, in the case of Pico, you know, Pico brings its own PKI. Um, you know, having, you know, performance, uh, you know, being able to like tune your cluster, you know, you know, fairly easily, be able to clone data and add things like connection pooling as you, know, you continue to scale out. So without further ado, uh, let's get into the demo. Uh, you know, I think, I hope this says, you know, helps up the context, you know, in, in, in general, like, you know, not only like what you look for when running a database in production, you know, let alone Postgres, but um, what, um, you know, the, the general framework. So just to show there's nothing up my sleeve, um, I'm in my Kubernetes cluster. I'm actually using a local kind cluster. I actually went ahead and deployed the Postgres operator. You know, just, uh, there you go. So you can see it's up and running. And I have a, you know, I have a, you know, I've already created you know, a few manifests to deploy everything. So we're actually going to go through uh, the script I set up all together. Uh, we're first going to deploy our application and our monitoring stack. And I'm going to explain what I mean by all that in a moment. So let's get everything up and running. Cool. 
So I've said, so today we're going to be deploying Keycloak um, and have Keycloak backed by a Postgres database. Uh, Keycloak is an identity management application. Uh, it's pretty cool. Uh, you know, we actually use that crunchy data for a bunch of different things. And we're going to have a Postgres database connected to it. So I'm going to go through the manifest real quick here and you know, explain you know, some of the different things here. Um, so first, uh, you, know, you can see like we're loading in our, our Postgres image and you know, we're specifying high availability. Now, in this case, we can run two replicas and I have high availability because of using uh, the DCS that uh, you know, Kubernetes provides. Uh, I set up two different backup repositories. Um, one is using lo you know, local Kubernetes storage. The other is using uh, my S3 bucket. And we'll see, uh, we're gonna have some fun with that later. Uh, I won't spoil the surprise. I've deployed a, a monitoring sidecar, so that way we can start exporting metrics. Uh, so those are, some of those will be available by the time we uh, look at that. And you know, some other things just to uh, you know, help uh, deploy our Keycloak database, oh, sorry, our Keycloak application. Now, here's my favorite part of this. Um, this is actually the favorite part of, my of the entire demo for me. And it's binding our application to the database. All of the credentials exist you know, within a secret. And you know, within the secret, so basically, I don't even need to know what the user credentials are. I can just, you know, I can just make a reference to the secret to my application manifest, and everything is, uh, you know, everything is there. Um, we can actually inspect that a little bit, but just to get a little bit ahead of the demo, I'm going to take a manual backup uh, to S3, which is going to be helpful later. And even like with you know things that are uh, imperative actions, like specifying a backup manually. Uh, we do that decoratively in the sense that you know you annotate the custom resource definition, uh, Pico detects that, and then goes ahead and makes the backup. You can schedule backups on your own and you know have them occur you know using kubecron jobs. And I strongly recommend that you know you set that up anyway. So let's see our let's see our uh, application up and running. First to show that there's nothing up my sleeve. Um, because I'm using my local kind cluster, I'm just going to port forward it. Here we go. So here's Keycloak. Uh, this is the welcome screen. I'm going to log in. And here we go. Um, I'm in the main screen for Keycloak. That's it. No, that's pretty cool. You know, let's see if I can save some data. All right. Um, there we go. Data saved. Great. So like our application's up and running. We're against a high avail you know, highly available Postgres database. So you might not believe me yet that's highly available, but yeah, we'll see that in a little bit. Um, actually here, let me, let me show you what the topology looks like. So we can see we have, you know, our two database instances here. Um, you know, we'll want a backup job completed, one still running, the one to S3, which is going to take a little bit of time, but we have our application up and running. So cool. Like we got everything up and running. Now let me let me just ensure you that this is not a trick. Um, you know we actually save data to our database. Let me uh, exec in. So there's multiple ways to connect to the database. Uh, you know there's a secret that contains the database credentials, which you saw that I bound to the application. You you can of course take those database credentials and connect directly. Um, you can also exec into the pod, which is uh, since I have exec privileges on my local cluster, I'm doing that. And we can see that lo and behold, our data was saved to, uh, to the database. Um, one other thing I just wanna show, uh, you know, we do use the latest version of the custom resource definition uh, version one. So um, I do suggest, you know, if you wanna play around with our, you know, this wonderful open source software, I, you can know, you know, certainly uh, uh, explore just through, uh, you know, uh, 
difficult to explain. Um, I do strongly recommend reading the documentation and going through the tutorial because you will learn lots of cool things. And uh, it was also, for me personally, it was a lot of fun to write because you know, it allowed me to really explore uh, you know, the software that we built. All right, so we have a cluster, you know, we've done day zero. We have a cluster, it's up and running. Uh, we've connected our application to it. Everything seems good, everything seems great. But as we know in production, chaos can occur and chaos can occur in a, in a lot of different ways. Um, one of the most important elements in our cluster is a service. Uh, why is service important? A service is a stable endpoint. Basically, it lets you know that you can always connect to whatever it may be, your application, your database, et cetera, you know, through this endpoint. An important one for us is this one called uh, Keycloak DB primary, which is a stable endpoint to, you know, whichever Postgres instance is your primary or the one that accepts reads and writes. It would be a bad thing if that service gets deleted. In fact, if, you know, under normal circumstances, if I delete a service, it's gone. Oof, you know, you know, you don't see it ever again. So I'm gonna delete that service and, you know, try to create havoc, but we'll see that um, you know, when I, you know, when it comes back up, um, it actually comes back up almost instantly. It's like the service was never deleted. And that's because, you know, Pico, the operator detected that the service was deleted and recreated it. And this is like a fundamental, this is the fundamental power of the operator pattern is, you know, it, you know, the operator is constantly watching for what's gone in the environment. And in production, you know, if you see something that's out of whack, you see something that's either going against, uh, what your manifest currently states or you know, what an operator expects to be there, it should go in and fix that. So let's make sure that our application is still up and running and it appears to be so, and it appears that I can still uh, save data to the database, at least through the UI. And again, to show there's nothing up my sleeve, I'm going to exec in. And we see that you know, there, lo and behold, our data is still there. Cool. All right, so we survived like one day one type scenario, which is, you know, like, you know, something happened in my Kubernetes environment and, you know, we were able to recover from it. We were able to automatically heal. So let's scale up or actually say, let's scale out. Let's add like another, let's add another instance because, you know, two instances in this case, two Postgres instances in this case give us high availability, but three is better. You know, three gives us a little bit more resiliency against, you know, one node or two nodes or, you know, what have you going down. So I'm, what I'm gonna do is I'm gonna go into our manifest. I'm gonna change replicas from two to three. And then I am going to first uh, make it easier for me to click through things. And I'm gonna run, I'm gonna do a kubectl apply and have the changes roll out. So let's, uh, I'm actually gonna open up a different tab. So we can see the new instance coming up. So we can see that we have a primary uh, we have a replica and you know we have this new instance initializing which you know as part of the initialization process it needs to you know get a copy of the data um the way pico does this is that if it, it uses uh, one of the backups to speedily uh, recreate that information and then it attaches it to you know to uh the current primary to get up to date and you know it becomes a streaming replica so we can see that we have everything up great we have three instances so let's have a little bit of fun. Let's get into, you know, I don't know if you consider a day one or day two operation, but let's get into a software update. Um, you know, let's say our application is wildly successful. You know, we need to tune our memory a little bit. Let's give our Postgres instances, you know, a little bit more memory, you know, and subsequently, you know, we could do some adjustments to uh, the Postgres configuration itself. What, so what we will do is that we're gonna send a memory request for our instances and say, you know, we, we wanna have a one gigabyte memory request. Now, 
depending on your production application, that might actually be way too little memory for your database. Um, because I'm on my local machine, I don't want to totally uh, you know, blow up my memory. But let's apply this change. Now, well, notice that when we do apply this change, this is a destructive operation because basically we're going to the stateful set and saying, you know, we need to adjust the memories, um, which means that we have to recreate our pods. So what Pico does is it does this in a rolling fashion. It first takes a replica, um, it takes it down, it makes sure that uh, it does a safe shutdown, make sure it's, you know, it applies the change, make sure it's healthy, then it goes to the next pod. Um, so in this case, you know, we're, we're, we're handling the second replica and, you know, it's the same process that we're gonna make sure we can shut it down safely, we're gonna bring it up. And then we, when we know it's ready and able to accept connections and healthy, at this point, we're gonna go after the primary. So what we're gonna do is a controlled switch over, which we can see here where uh, you know, we promote the most healthy replica. That becomes the new primary. Uh, all the connections get rerouted there. And uh, we take down the old primary and apply the change to it. So first let's make sure that there's nothing on my sleeve here that we actually applied all these changes. And I'm going to take uh, the value of the, Oh no, um, so I'm gonna take the name of the old primary. And since I usually look at the YAML, I always, uh, I always uh, slip up where I'm looking for the memory request, but ah, here it is. Our memory request succeeded. Uh, it is definitely on the new pod. So great, we actually did apply these changes and our application should still be up. Now, sometimes with key cloak, there might be some connection retry logic that will get it into a loop. Um, in this case, it didn't probably because, you know, I stated uh, one, one of the holes and moves I poke in the demo, but, Let's make sure that we're still able to save. Um, you know, we are indeed going to a new database now, but it looks like the, you know, the value saved. And if we do an exec into it, voila, the data is there. So cool. So we've, we've got through like, you know, some fairly common things that occur when running your database in production. I mean, one, we created the database, we connected our application to it. We made sure everything was working. Um, you know, we dealt with you know, some, you know, some scenario, you know, some chaos scenarios that occur that could, you know, potentially cause downtime, but we recovered and we saw that in this case, we had no downtime. And then, uh, you know, we saw that our application needs some more uh, resources or, you know, call that a software update. Uh, we applied it and we did it in a way where there was no disruption to our application. Cool. Now let's, you know, let's get a, let's take this to the next level and let's do something that's definitely very day two oriented, which is uh, preparing for disaster. Um, there's certainly been a lot of advances, advances in Kubernetes over the past few years to enable, to make it easier to run a multi-cluster uh, Kubernetes environments. And by that, I mean, having multiple Kubernetes clusters and you know, spreading your applications and your workloads across them. One of the critical linchpins of that is your Postgres data, you know, or any database, but you know, in this case, a Postgres database, and making sure that we're able to get the data and the information between the two, and set us up for you know uh, promotion or failover scenarios. So in real time, we're going to create a uh, a standby cluster in a in a different data center. Now, first, let's make sure you know we're going to be leveraging uh, S3 as our broker here. Um, you know, that's not the only way you can do it. Um, you can leverage uh, different backup storage systems. Um, but the reason we use the external third party is that it gives us a broker to be able to get the information between uh, uh, both systems. So we see that, um, you know, recall that our second backup repository was the S3 repository, and we do have a backup there. So we know that there's information there to uh, create the standby cluster. So let's go ahead and do that because that's gonna take a few minutes. All right, so that's being created. So our standby cluster, 
it's actually going to look very similar to our primary cluster. Um, and that's my design. I want you to make this as uh, homogeneous as possible. But the one difference is that we have the session called standby. It says enable true. And it's pointing at the backup repository. We're using the bootstrapping you know, and continuously reading some of the data. Um, I'm hoping this is as easy as one can make it uh, to create a, a standby Postgres cluster. For application, um, you know, we are deploying Keycloak in that second data center. But um, in this case, I'm not starting it up right now. Um, I do need to dive in to see if Keycloak has a read-only mode, and I will probably do that for the next time I demo this. Or um, it is a way to like you know wrap you know Keycloak connections to the different data center, which it should be if you know, you know based upon how you set up your secrets. Um, so in this case, I'm starting it at uh, zero, and we'll see us bring it up. Now I'm hand waving one thing on the multi Kubernetes cluster aspect, which is that to save some kubectl context switching, I actually deployed this cluster to a namespace that I called uh, data center two or DC two here. So you can imagine that these are two different data centers. Um, you know, this example works if you're going to two different Kubernetes clusters. Uh, just for simplicity for the demo, so we're not like constantly kubectl context switching. I'm just doing it in multiple namespaces. So, you know, I'm an open source person, so I try to give full transparency on you know all of the examples we go through. So let's see how we're doing in terms of bringing up our Postgres cluster. Um, let's see if we're up yet. And I'm going to do it uh, the risky way, which is let's just run a query against the database. Cool. So notice we're on the, the DC2 database now, and it is up and running. Let's take a quick look at the pods that are there. So yeah, we can see our database pods, and we can see uh, you know, uh, one of our backup repository pods is already there. Um, how do we know this is actually a standby cluster? Well. I'm going to tell you that this command in Postgres, PG is in recovery. If it returns true, that means that it is um, it's in it's in replay mode, or basically it's uh, you know it's basically accepting changes from a different database. Um, in this case, it returned true, so this is definitely a standby cluster. And I'm going to run this command just to uh, synchronize uh, the value of the the key cloak secret um, between uh, our primary our primary cluster and our standby cluster. Uh, there's different ways you can do this. You could use, you know, for instance, an operator that synchronizes secrets between uh, two different data centers. Um, I'm just doing this, you know, you know, the hand wavy way, just for the sake of simplicity of the demo. Last but not least, let's see the status of our backups in, uh, you know, in our standby uh, data center. We can see that we are using the backup, and if we uh, did a reference against it, uh, we're, you know, we're leveraging the backup from the. Uh, that's yeah from uh, from the primary data center uh, that's in S3. So cool. We have our standby cluster set up. You know it's ready, willing, and able to be promoted. So let's go into like a full day two operation and promote that. So the first thing to do is uh, this is a classic database the database technique is to uh, shut down. You know we want to make sure that our primary uh, data center is no longer active. We want to try to avoid split brain. And in this case, we can control it. We can explicitly say shut down data center one or shut down our Postgres cluster there. So we shall go ahead and do that. Uh, doo -doo -doo. Of course, that's why I should copy and paste my command so I don't have to think about it. So let's watch what happens. So this is interesting. Um, so first, what we're going to do is we're going to shut down all the replicas. On again, we do something. We do a safe shutdown to make sure you know any active transactions you know get you know flushed to the disk or you know get pushed up to uh, the backup repository. Uh, we then terminate the primary, 
and then uh, you know we'll be you know after that we'll be safe to promote the the, the backup data center. And I just want to show that everything is no longer running there. So well we have a key clock running. I didn't shut that off, but uh, that that is on me to improve the demo in that regard. All right, so let's promote our standby cluster. And promoting a standby cluster is easy is as easy as shifting enable to false. And this time, oop, what am I doing? Oh, the, uh, let's see. So the other thing, oh, oops, sorry, I forgot one thing. This is why I script things out. Um, we're also gonna bring Keycloak up as well, since now we're promoting the standby. And that being said, let's, uh, let's do that. So the fun thing here is that when we promote the standby, you know, it's almost instantaneous. You know, the database is already up and running. Um, but you know, Keycloak is gonna take a little bit to boot up. Um, some of that is just based upon the Keycloak application itself. Just for clarity on the demo, um, I'm gonna set a new port forward to Keycloak and I'm gonna do it on a different port. Um, I was running on 5,000 before, I'm gonna go to 5,001. And that's just to be clear that, you know, we're accessing Keycloak, you know, from that different data center. So let's see if Keycloak is up running and ready, uh, not just yet. Um, okay. Yeah, I just wanna show everything is working. There we go. All right. So here we go. We're back in Keycloak. Uh, it's a new session because uh, I mean we did we did restart our pod, so it's a new session, but it's also you know a different Keycloak instance. And there we go. We still have our data. It's the data that we have from the primary data center, but this is Keycloak connected to. Um, you know, connected to our previously, our, our standby data center uh, cluster, which is pretty cool. I think it's pretty cool. So make sure, that, oh, actually, you know, first off, let me, uh, let me change the data, show that it's actually writable. That's a success. Um, all right, we can see that, you know, the data, the data did uh, exist in the DC2 database. Um, I will confirm that, you know, that database is actually writable. So PGs in recovery returned false. And what I'm actually going to do is I'm going to make sure that we get a backup save to our, you know, we, you know, we have two backup repositories in this case, you know, one in S3, one in the local storage. So I'm triggering a backup in the local storage to make sure it's there because that's going to come into play in our next scenario. Um, one moment, please. All right, so let's make sure that backup is complete. All right, so we have a backup to that data center. Now we're going to attempt something that is a bit. Uh, sometimes I get it correct in the live demo, sometimes I don't, and this is going to be called a point in time recovery. Now, a point in time recovery is an operation you need to be very careful of. Basically, it allows you to roll back your database to a specific point in time. Um, what do I mean by that? The classic example I like to use is dropping the users table. Um, if you're ever doing uh, work in your production database, always do it in a transaction, always type begin first, and then uh, go ahead and uh, make your changes. Uh, because if you don't do that, you might accidentally drop your uh, drop your user table. Now, I will say personally, I don't think I well, actually, did I ever drop the user table? I probably did drop the user table at least once, but thanks to point in time recovery, you know, I, I'm able to recover. Um, Pigo offers two ways of doing a point in time recovery. The first, and this is the preferred method, and the method I strongly suggest you use if you ever have to do it, is you create a new Postgres cluster and you do the point in time recovery there. 
This allows you to at least futz with what's going on uh, to make sure that uh, the data is in the state in which uh, you would like, uh, like for it to be in. Um, the second method is you could do it in place. And you know, that's a little bit riskier because if you mess up the point in time recovery, um, you may not be able to uh, go back to uh, you know, the point in time that you wanted to. So I'm, gonna, I'm just gonna do a little bit more munging of the data um, just to make sure uh, you know, I really, uh, I really uh, screwed it up. And we're gonna try to go back to the previous state. So what we're gonna do is um, first I am going to go in and I am going to uh, modify our manifest to set the point in time recovery. So we're gonna be using the, the backup from the, you know, the, the local backup repository within this new Kubernetes cluster that we set up uh, because it'll be a little bit faster to perform than me going out to S3. So let me see if I can set the time correctly. Uh, the time will be in UTC because that is uh, what our container time is set to. Um, let's see how good my math is. So from here it's plus five. So let's do 17, let me do 1735. So the reason, uh, the reason like I'm uh, you know, trying to be careful about it is I've, uh, Usually I get this correct in the live demo, but based upon how uh, Postgres looks for um, some of the archive files, you know, when you're doing the restore, um, usually even in your, in your truly active databases is no issue, but because, you know, you know, we're slightly idle, even though we have a you know, production application hooked up to it, um, we might be, there might be no uh, write ahead logs present in the backup. So I just wanna make sure that we have that actually done. Um, so I guess now without, you know, further stalling and hopefully, uh, I'm being overly paranoid and this actually will work fine. Let's prepare our in-place point in time recovery. So because point, an in-place point in time recovery is a destructive operation, you have to do it in two steps. Um, I, still say, I still say that it's a declarative way of doing it, but there, there's a second step. So we declare like, this is what we want a point in time recovery to look like, and we say it's enabled, but to truly carry it out, uh, you have to set an annotation. Um, you know, it's a two key method is to make sure like, hey, you're really sure of doing this. So even though you have to you know, run the, you know, the annotate command, um, you know, we still apply the annotation of the manifest and the point in time recovery begins. So let's see it occurring. So you can see that our restore job is running. Um, you know, that was pretty fast. And um, should our, you know, should I set everything up correctly, we will see our Postgres instances come back up and they will be uh, up and running and healthy. Let's see, did I do it? Uh, when I, there we go. Oh, I think I did do it. Um, so I did bring Keycloak down. Uh, in part, uh, Keycloak actually has some caching layers I discovered while doing this live and seeing things uh, not work. Um, so we're gonna scale Keycloak back up, which means I'm gonna have to uh, re restart our port forward. Uh, we'll take Keycloak a minute to come up. But we should hopefully see that our munge data gets unmunged when we do the refresh. Uh, hopefully I pick the, the correct time. Now, the reason why I'm spending a lot of time on point in time recovery is that I find this happens more often than not you're, when you're running databases in Kubernetes. And I'll back up a second and say, you know, a lot of people focus on high availability. And in fact, I did, you know, it's great to have your data up and running and available, but um, the storage layer in Kubernetes, I say, is something that's fundamentally, you know, it's both still being developed, you know, it's certainly improved, you know, even since I started looking at it, but in a distributed system, particularly when you're using network storage, you know, a lot can go wrong. And, you know, suddenly you might find out that, uh, you know, something that you thought was written to disk may not be, and, you know, you need to restore or, you know, something got corrupted or whatnot. 
So I, you know, while people emphasize high availability, I always emphasize backups. Make sure you back up your data. Don't have one backup, have two backups. Actually, with Pico, we let you uh, store backups in four different places. And we may even expand that, you know, for the, the people who you know, want to be really careful about that. But take backups. Like we try to make it as easy as possible to take backups. And likewise, we try to make it as easy as possible to, you know, do, uh, to, to recover. You know, there, you know, organizations have RTO and RPO requirements. We want to make sure that, you know, you're able to meet those. So it looks like we have key click up and running. Let's refresh. And let's see, did we restore our data? We did it. Oh, yes, it always feels good when you do a, a live point in time recovery successfully. I mean, I can tell you when I, you know, having done like real point in time recoveries, like you sweat bullets when you're doing it. And um, I remember a scenario where I had, I, had, you know, I had to do a point in time recovery and it probably took me two days to set it up to my liking. You know, it was a scenario where some data wasn't saving, you know, appropriately, you know, within the database, but you know, we did have all the historical data, so we were able to snapshot and get the information we wanted, but I had to manually set up this point in time recovery. Uh, something like, you know, with Pico, I don't need to worry about that. I just need to like put in my various times and move forward in the timeline and, you know, the operator orchestrates all of that. And that's like some of the, you know, the, the, some of the understated power of, you know, using an operator to manage your databases is that you can encapsulate like some of these normally very complex operations and simplify it and make it more accessible. Like I said, like I, I, I'm an accidental DBA. I'm, I'm truly an application developer, but having something that gives me access to more of the DBA operations in a way that's simpler to handle makes it much easier to run uh, you know, production Postgres on my own. So let's, uh, um, you know, as I mentioned, um, you know, it's possible to schedule backups. Uh, you know, we're not gonna get into that. And looking at the clock, I wanna make sure we save time for questions. So let me do, let me do one more thing with our cluster, and that's to set up a connection proxy. Um, often set up a connection proxy for, you know, dealing with more throughput of your, uh, of your applications, you know, you have a lot of connections and, you know, you want to uh, uh, put an appropriate load on them on, uh, you know, basically you want to, you know, scale your connection load appropriately in your Postgres database. So we use an open source connection pooler called PG Bouncer. Um, you can see that's already up and running. And what's cool, and you know, I forgot to show you what the, the user secret looks like in the beginning, is that as soon as you add the PG Bouncer, the user secret gets updated to have uh, the connection credentials to it. So again, you don't need to pass the credentials around. Uh, you could just plug them right into your manifest. So let's do that. Um, here's Keycloak. Just say PG Bouncer host, PG Bouncer port. Again, I can be blissfully ignorant of what these values actually are. Boom, so it's reconfigured and um, we do need to wait for uh, the changes to roll out to the key cloak pod. So we'll give that, we'll give that a moment. But yeah, just to going back to here, um, you know, the idea with like the user having the credentials and the secrets is that, you know, you can disallow, you know, direct access to your secrets. You know, people, you know, your users can just, you know, connect their applications to, uh, to the database and, you know, set and forget. And if you need to rotate the credentials, you can do that. You don't need to pass them around. It is truly you know, a wonderful set and forget experience. My favorite words as the accidental DBA. Excuse me. Okay, so it looks like we have Keycloak up and running again. Oh, one thing, one thing, Jonathan, real quick question. Uh, sure. Got a question from the audience. Uh, this is the Postgres operator version five, right? Correct. Okay, cool. Got it. Thank you. Sure. Welcome. All righty. So, do, 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 do. What did I just do? Um, 
So I think I guess we I restart Keycloak. Let's make sure everything's still up and running. So you log back in. Um, I can continue to monitor our data. And well, how do we know that we actually went through a connection? Uh, you know, the connection pooler. Um, I can uh, make it somewhat easier to look at. Um, well, first, let me prove that the data still exists. And it does. There we go. There's our wonderful Munge data. And uh, if we look through the stat activity, um, I'll show you our, you know, there's a special administrative PG Bouncer user, which, of course, whenever I do it in this view, you can't see it. Oh, here it is. Um, but we also have, you know, Keycloak connecting, you know, through the JDBC driver through the uh, PG Bouncer user. So, um, you know, this allows us basically to, uh, you know, basically, you know, easily tie our application into uh, back to our database, you know, through the proxy. So last but not least, monitoring. Um, let's look at let's look at monitoring. And you know, one thing, you know, I mean, monitoring is, you know, I think it's something that needs to be, you know, it goes hand in hand with throwing things in production. You need to have visibility into what you're doing. And I think the Kubernetes community does a wonderful job of uh, of uh, making monitoring accessible, making visualization accessible. Um, so we, you know, we basically uh, with Pigo leverage some of the, the wonderful open source monitoring uh, tools available, you know, Prometheus, Grafana, Alert Manager, to provide us some turnkey Postgres metrics. So let's look at some of those. Um, so you can see our two clusters. Well, one is uh, our primary data center is definitely down, but we have a HA cluster in the second data center. Uh, we can go in and look at the details of it. Um, and, you know, it's essentially, you know, the stats that, you know, one would expect. Um, let me go over the last five minutes. There we go. So, um, and when I say the stats that you expect, I think the stats that Postgres DBA expects. Um, you, know, um, you know, what's your connection saturation? What's the size of your database? You know, what's the workload on the database? Is there any replication lag? You know, how big is your write-ahead log directory growing? Um, things that you know you typically uh, look you know for in troubleshooting. You get details about the pod. You get details about the backups. Um, you know, you know, when was your last backup taken? You know, what's the size of your wall archive? What's the size of your backups? Are there, are, are your archives appropriately pushing? Um, and even things like query statistics, you know, what are my slowest queries? Um, you know, let me uh, just look inside Keycloak. So I guess we're not running too many queries inside Keycloak, so it's not all too interesting, but um, you know, let's do all again. Um, how many queries are running? You know, you know which, one, which queries are taking up the most time in aggregate? Uh, which queries are you know just taking up the most time individually and so on and so forth. So you know all the metrics that you would expect to, uh, to to debug your database. So I am pleased to report that this concludes uh, the demo. Uh, I have a couple more slides that recap it, um, as well as uh, destroying the uh, cluster in the end. But uh, I figured like this would be a good place to pause if there are any questions um, in case like there's additional things that uh, we can demo today. Obviously, this you know we've done 111 live streams. This is our 112th. Very, very well explained. I guess you know thinking from the perspective of folks that are out there that are approaching this challenge of you know okay let's do uh, let's get you know let's run database on Kubernetes. For you, what are the things that that have been difficult for you in this process, or what are the things you you might anticipate that could be perhaps easy mistakes to make? Yeah, yeah, that, that's a, that's a great question. So, I would say. When I first came to Kubernetes, I think, and this was back in like, I think Kubernetes was just like at 1.11, maybe, maybe it might have even been 1.10. First, like 
if you're just diving into Kubernetes, the community moves fast. Like very, it's hard to like keep track of everything. I'm lucky I have some good friends who are way smarter than me that uh, feed me the uh, high level points on it. But you can still go back to the basics. Um, I would say even before you start running a database in Kubernetes, um, I'm gonna plug a book that I get zero commission on, but like this finally helped put Kubernetes in perspective as it's called Kubernetes in Action. And even though like, you know, it was originally written, I think around Kubernetes 1.4 and, you know, and uh, the author's working on the second edition now, it just has, it just covers all the fundamentals are still the same. And that's, what's, that's what Kubernetes got correct in the beginning, like fundamental architecture. You understand the workflow, you understand how it works, that gives you a leg up and things. So let's go into databases. You know, the premise of the stock and even the premise, premise of my work on uh, Pigo was, it's, it's actually not that hard to get a database up and running in Kubernetes. Like, I'm, I'm, I'm not gonna lie to you. Like you can get database up and running. You're gonna have a lot of challenges running it in production if you don't apply automation to it. And I would strongly, strongly say, you know, whether you use Pigo or any other operator that you want to have an operator against your databases. Why? Chaos things are going to break in Kubernetes, no matter, especially as you add more and more nodes, like things will break and it's no fault of Kubernetes. I think, you know, given the massive scale of Kubernetes, I think it's amazing, like, you know, how well things work in general. But beyond like, you know, anticipating that there will be chaos, I think the biggest mistake people make is they focus so much on availability. They're like, I want high availability. I want like rapid failovers. And like, look, I, I can give you all of that today. Focus on where your data is being stored. Focus on the storage layer, which storage system are you using? And most importantly, focus on the backups. Um, Pico is actually very opinionated on backups. Like we force you to have at least one backup repository and not everyone likes that. They're like, oh, I wanna run this in development. I'm like, okay, that's fine. And you know, perhaps in the fullness of time, you know, we will let you disable backups, but by default, we force backups because that cluster you're running in development may one day be your production cluster. And if like you don't have your backups set up, you're gonna be in trouble. And I've seen, you know, the, the biggest mistake I've seen is, you know, people not caring for their backups and then running into an issue where there is corruption on their, uh, you know, their primary database. Um, and, you know, the corruption gets replicated to the different instances. And keep in mind, having a replica is not a backup. You know, it may, you know, in certain scenarios, it may help you restore more quickly, but backups are backups. They're their own thing. Focus on the backups. Ensure you understand your backup strategy with your data in Kubernetes. This extends beyond Postgres. Um, because, you know, there's a very strong probability you will need to use them. And then test your backups, make sure you can restore. Um, I would say probably most of, you know, the issues reported in GitHub do come around backups and for, for a variety of reasons, but, you know, you know, typically it's things at the storage layer that, you know, we're troubleshooting and we just want to make sure that you're able to store your data safely in Kubernetes. Like I feel totally comfortable running my applications in production on Kubernetes uh, with Pico. Um, you know, I'm willing. You know, I'm willing to stand behind that. And you know, the reason is, you know, just focusing on those layers. Everything else, you know, will, you know, you know, but uh, you know, it, sa it sounds funny, but I'm like high availability. Actually, I think comes fairly easy. Like Kubernetes gives some wonderful constructs to like, you know, give like robust HA solutions. Um, so I emphasize to people focus on the backups. Last but not least, uh, monitor, uh, get those insights. <laughs> you you want to be able to anticipate problems before they become problems. And it sounds, you know, and sure that's like, you know, marketing, you know, you know, buzz speak, but like, it's true. Like, you know, it's much easier to avoid a problem, you know, like running out of disk before, uh, you know, b before it happens. Uh, does that answer your question? It does. And, and very, very well. Uh, what I would like to take a little bit further, and this is something we've kind of 
asked several different speakers and we've seen a wonderful, you know, uh, both slide presentation as well as the demo regarding how this is done. Taking it a step, I guess, I don't know, taking a step back or even a step forward, the, the how is one thing, the why being another one. And this is, I say this because this is something that we get as feedback from folks that might not be 100% convinced that this is, um, this is something that their organizations are ready for or things of that nature. But when, if someone asks you, you know, why should I do this? How would you, how would you respond to that? Yeah, so I think, so that, that's a very good question. Um, this is something I ask myself every day because I think the why does drive, you know, the product innovation. Um, in some cases, the why is simple. It's that our, we have an organizational mandate, we're moving to Kubernetes or some variation of Kubernetes, and that means everything, including our databases. So how can we make sure we can run our database workloads, you know, as close as possible to, uh, to the application? Um, but I think that's a cop-out answer. So I'm going to give a more abstract one. It's, you know, when you're comparing against, you know, managed services or, you know, running on bare metal or, you know, just, you know, not using an operator, you know, why, you know, why would I do this? So there's a few reasons. One, you know, it's having control over where your data is deployed. And, you know, I can, you know, I can make an argument that even with a managed service, you know, you have some control over that in terms of zone. You might not have control in terms of provider unless you, you know, I give a quick plug for Crunchy Bridge, where Crunchy Bridge does let you choose, uh, you know, which you know cloud you want to have things hosted in. But um, you know, something you know, Kubernetes is like much more is powerful in the sense that, like, you know, with that API, my node can live anywhere. It can live in any cloud. It can be public, private, hybrid, you know, anywhere. That means I can deploy my data anywhere, and it's you know the same API, the same way to manage it, you know, no matter where it is. So. If I want to have like a uniform way of managing my data and I want control over where I'm deploying that and not need to worry about the underlying infrastructure, that is why I would deploy my data on Kubernetes. I, you know, and, and you know, it, that is a very powerful concept. Now, look, it's not without its challenges because, you know, in addition to, you know, managing your Kubernetes infrastructure, you're then managing your data. And some people may have been, you know, managing their databases for years and, you know, they're very comfortable with dealing with all the challenges that come with that. You know, they're the people on the Crunchy staff, you know, they, you know, before they joined Crunchy, they were managing, I forget, like 10 or 20K Oracle databases. Um, you know, they've since made the switch to Postgres, but, you know, that you know, with that kind of institutional knowledge, like yeah, I think you know you know you get a leg up in terms of you know, managing everything in Kubernetes. Now you know we can certainly go into like a lot more specifics. You know you know why run a database in a container? You know you're able to you know lock down the entire file system instead of you know you know except for you know your database directory. Um, you know it's easier to like you know shift your workloads around to the various different nodes. Um, you know we there's certainly all this you know the semantics, but it's really looking, you know, it's really solving the higher level question of why, which is, you know, why even go through this rigmarole? And, you know, the answer I always come back to is, you know, the freedom to move my data around. And look, it's it's rare that you do move your database, but that does happen. Like when, you know, in my uh, accidental, uh, you know, senior DBA role or, you know, what, what have you called it, I would move my data. Like if I got a better, if I got a very competitive price from a data center, yeah, I would move it. And then I'd have to, you know, I'd have to like ship everything around. So hopefully this uh, at least you know starts answering the why. I think um, we literally could spend an hour just uh, discussing, easily, discussing. easily, easily. No, but it's refreshing to hear that perspective. Um, one question that we got in in the chat: Can you do a major upgrade of Postgres with this operator, or um, can we use other scenarios like logical repl replication or PG dump? I have a slide on that coming up. Oh, oh, no spoilers! All right, well, take it away with your slide then. Cool. So let's let's bring it on home and do the rest of the questions. Um, because actually, uh, 
I do want to do a quick demo recap, if that's okay. Yeah, yeah, go for um, it. Yes. Yeah, because because we saw a lot today. Like I tried to show like as much as I could of the entire like database lifecycle, things that happened in day zero, day one, day two, you know, from you know, you know, how we deployed a production cluster, like fairly simply, you know, as as close to like a one-click install as you get to Kubernetes. I mean, just a, a manifest and crew cuddle. Um, you were able to handle maintenance operations with, you know, in this case, no downtime. Um, you know, we did a, as straightforward as possible of a multi-cluster demonstration. Again, I cheated a little bit by just using like two namespaces, but, you know, this applies to running uh, databases in different uh, clusters. Uh, we did, we successfully did point in time recovery in place, which is always the part like I sweat bullets on. Um, and, uh, you know, we looked at the monitoring and we looked at, you know, being able to, you know, you know create a connection pooler as, you know, our application starts getting more throughput to it. So spoiler alert, um, there's a new version coming out at, uh, you know, at some point this quarter. Um, it's gonna have Postgres major version upgrades and it's gonna be a fully declarative way of doing it. Um, we also, uh, we're also added uh, in the PG Admin 4 uh, user interface for managing databases and you know, some enhancements to, uh, to rolling updates as well, you know, particularly operations where we don't need to destroy the entire pod. We can, you know, such as you know, changing a, a, a Postgres variable that, uh, um, requires uh, a restart, you do the rolling update just like that. Um, it, you know, to answer the question about uh, doing a major upgrade uh, using uh, logical replication, uh, you can do that. Um, we don't provide the orchestration for it. Um, that's certainly possible. That sounds like a, a wonderful blog post for someone to write. Uh, but that, uh, that you know, the, the operator will orchestrate, you know, managing the two clusters, but you would have to orchestrate the logical replication. I do have a blog post out there on uh, creating like an active, active, you know, multiple Postgres writable nodes all speaking to each other uh, using the, uh, you know, the, the Postgres operator. Um, so let me, uh, let me just bring it on home and then happy to answer any more questions. Um, you can find out more. Um, there's the, the product pitch page if you're interested in, uh, as well as uh, the, open source, uh, the open source code. Uh, the Pico is entirely open source. So you know, feel free to inspect it, deploy it, beat it up, uh, submit patches and so on and so forth. And uh, the examples as well, which uh, you really should use the examples with the, you know, the tutorial that comes in the documentation. So with that, I am done and ready for any other questions that you have. Um, no, I think very, very, very complete. Obviously, you're you're pretty easy to find if folks want to continue the conversation. Um, but just want to give everybody a chance, you know, that's in the chat right now. If you have any additional questions, feel free to get them out there. If not, we can definitely continue the conversation in Slack. I this is very, very good. Um, this Thank is you. very, very good. And I and I really do, you know, like I said, we've we've asked lots of different folks their opinion about, you know, why run data on Kubernetes and also addressing the issues and mistakes. Like you said, it's not that there's, you know, one size fits all for, for everybody on this. You mentioned, you know, having one book as a reference. Other folks can have other resources that might work for them. The point is that there are lots of different ways to, to reach the same objective. I think part of it is, you know, make open source and community a part of your strategy about how you learn this so you don't have to do it 100% alone. Yeah. Um, and like you said as well, too, because the ecosystem is evolving so quickly for some folks that can be a little bit overwhelming sometimes. But, you know, as fast as things are going, you can also slow them down. That's why we have live streams like this one to make these things simpler. Um, maybe, uh, can I just get you to stop sharing your screen really quickly? Sure. So I can share mine. Um, yeah, we, have a, we have a little bit of a tradition in our community. So while you were, uh, while you were talking, we have a very, uh, very talented artist who's creating an artistic rendition uh, interpretation of the, of the things that were covered in the live stream. 
Um, wow. Obviously not all of them, because you got through a lot in an hour. I mean, there was not a dull moment. There wasn't a single um, lapse at any point in time in terms of content from both the slide presentation as well as the demo. Um, but I think it's just nice to see a, a visual representation, uh, an artistic rendition that, of the things that are the things that were covered. That um, person that that person is way better looking than me. So uh, <laughs> many 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 kudos to the artist. But uh, I'm gonna thank you. Uh, no 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 no. I think it's I think it's quite accurate. Um, so anyway, I guess you know since we're getting towards the end, is there anything that you would you know you did recommend you didn't recommend Kubernetes in action? Any other resources or things like that? You might you put some great links there too. And we'll be sharing the slides just so everybody knows. We'll be sharing the slides as well so people can check that out. Um, any other resources that you recommend or things that you think folks should anticipate in the near future? Yeah, that's a that's a good question. Uh, so I mean, I think you know the way I learned Kubernetes was actually similar to how I learned Postgres, which was uh, first I just. Uh, did it like I tried? Uh, yeah, I don't know. I don't know how to say. It. Like you know, I used my street knowledge of uh, of you know, you know running technology. Um, but certainly, like tying it into something real always helps. Um, I think actually what helped crystallize a lot of the version five design of Pico was taking real applications like Keycloak. Uh, you know, putting it through things like Argo and seeing you know. How are people actually trying to deploy their applications? Um, it's actually really cool. You know, I'll plug, uh, oh, I want to get the name of the project correct. The, I believe it's the, the service broker operator, um, which basically helps bind credentials between uh, you know, different you know, stateful services. Um, seeing them use Pico as, as an example for how to do that was like, was like really cool. Um, but again, you know, also makes you, you know, for me, that, that also really makes me think like, how are people actually connecting to their databases? Because that's really the initial start. Um, the Kubernetes documentation is great. Um, I think that's where uh, you know we constantly reference it, even in uh, in the the Pico code base uh, for you know you know how to how to do you know particular things. Um, but you know I think you know that that was the other way I learned Kubernetes was I just went through the the Kubernetes tutorial and the documentation. And by the way, just as you know, someone who's contributed to the Postgres documentation lightly, I am just like blown away by like all the contributions to the cube documentation like it's really it's really a, a cool ecosystem and you know it's solved a lot of the problems of how do you do these things you know how do you how do you contribute at scale agreed agreed and yeah. as somebody who's involved in the cncf as well too yeah the sheer number of, of contributors and stuff that's going on is is very very impressive and it's a very warm and welcoming community if folks haven't checked that out um, Postgres is also a very, very vibrant community. We have different members in our in our in the in the data on Kubernetes community that are very active there as well. So always nice to have a live stream about Postgres. Jonathan, thank you very much. Uh, I can't wait to have you back. Um, so we got to find okay. an excuse to get you back on. Hopefully yeah. as well too. As a reminder, folks, you can get your CFPs in for our co our co-located event in KubeCon. We'll definitely be having something about Postgres. Not sure exactly what it will be, but Jonathan, I highly encourage you to to submit um, a proposal as well. Thank and you. anyway, thank you very much for your time today and, and looking forward to connecting again. Yeah, great. Thank you. All right. Thank you so much. It was great to finally uh, finally do this. This was yes. a lot of fun. We did it. It was totally worth it. It, it was we worth the it. wait and can't wait to do it again. So thanks a lot, everybody. We'll see you next week. Awesome. Take care. Awesome.